Achieving a gorgeous grin from home isn't a total mystery with Byteclear aligners. Just don't be surprised if all of your sleuthing friends start asking, what's your secret? Begin by ordering your at-home impression kit today for only $14.95. Byteclear aligners are doctor-directed and delivered to your door. Treatment costs thousands less than braces. Plus, they offer flexible financing, accept eligible insurance, and you can pay with your HSA FSA. Get 80% off your impression kit when you use code WONDERY at That's Byte.com. That's B-Y-T-E dot com. Start your confidence journey today with Byte. Ah. The comfort of your favorite seat is now your comfy car-selling command center, thanks to Carvana. It doesn't get any better than this. Your favorite seat's the best spot in the house. Make it even better by entering your license plate or VIN and getting a real offer in minutes. There really is no place like home. And speaking of home, Carvana will pick up your car from yours after you finalize your offer. Visit Carvana.com or download the app and sell your car from your comfy place. Welcome to China Corner Office, a podcast powered by SupChina about the challenges and opportunities of doing business in the world's most dynamic economy. I'm Chris Marquis, a professor of business at Cornell, where I teach and research on this same topic. Every episode, we talk to an executive at a company doing business in China and explore what has led to their personal and business success, and also some of the challenges they've encountered along the way. In today's age, with never-before-seen geopolitical tensions between the U.S. and China, understanding how business can compete in China is more important than ever. Today, I'm talking to Ken Pao, who is one of the more interesting and impressive career paths of anyone I've met. After graduating from UCLA, Ken started a semiconductor distribution firm that he eventually sold to a Taiwanese company. Then, after graduating from Harvard Business School, he co-founded a VC-backed startup in China called Dorm99 that aimed to be the Facebook of China. His next stop was Foshan-based apparel maker Esquel, where he led their branded knitwear expansion. And after that start in China, for the last seven years, Ken has been based in Japan, running the APAC region for two different companies in the advertising technology space. Videology, which focused on video content placement, and now more recently, social media targeting company Criteo. Ken, welcome to China Corner Office. Hi, Chris. Uh, thanks for having me. Yeah, great to have you here with us. Why don't we start a little bit with your current business you're working at, Criteo. Would love to just understand a little bit about that business, maybe some of your core products and services. Uh, if you could describe those for us, that'd be great. Yeah, so I spent uh, the last nine years, Chris, um, in advertising technology. The company I'm currently working at is a retargeting company. Advertising has evolved a lot in the last 30 years, where before you might advertise based on uh, geolocation or you know just broad billboard advertising. Um, over the last 20 or 30 years, it got a lot more sophisticated um, as many technology companies such as mine or Google, Facebook, they're able to gather um, information, data, um, understand behavior habits, uh, to have a more targeted approach in getting the right ad in front of the right person at the right time. Uh, so Critio is one of those companies where we leverage cookies, data, first party data to offer consumers or, you know, consumers to the brand advertisers that advertise with us, um, you know, the right product recommendations, the right advertisements 
to their prospective clients. Interesting. So um, an example of that is sort of you might I might see a banner ad on, on a web page that I'm on based on my search history. Is that right? Yeah, so it could be search history. Um, it could be kind of the, the websites you've been on, the pages you've been on. So every time, um, so a lot of information is stored in your cookies um, on your computer. And that information is gathered by um, websites. And that will change now with a lot of the privacy um, laws that will be set forth in, in the coming years. But companies previously have been able to leverage the information off these cookies um, to make a more educated decision as in terms of what is the right advertisement to put in front of the person. Now, all the information, all the you know, PII, which is kind of private identif- ID or private ID information is, is all, you know, so we don't know as, is Chris that's on the other line um, that, you know, and how old you are or whatnot. It's, it's more kind of like we want to know more about kind of your behaviors or what are the things that you like and put it in more of a kind of a general um, scheme rather than specifically addressing Chris as the advertiser or as, as the audience. Interesting. So it's less, I think that you like would have a big giant database with, you know, people like me, but more you have a really sophisticated algorithm that you can see the cookies, uh, see where the user's been, and then target something like within, I don't know, fractions of a second. That's right. So, so yeah, so decision making needs to happen within two to four, uh, two to four milliseconds. Um, so it's, it's a very tight um, time frame. And um, the system, the, the digital system is so efficient um, that, you know, you could, um, explore basically millions of different options before kind of serving that one ad. Um, so it's, it's, it's very interesting. And, you know, one, one kind of high level example is, for example, um, mothers, uh, with children are a very attractive audience for a lot of consumer brands. Mothers with children are typically a little bit harder to find, um, online. What, you know, digital advertising offers is, you know, for example, if, if, if your wife is watching an, um, an ad and it's on a, a chick, um, you know, a beard shaver or, you know, like, a, you know, for men or shaver for men, it would be a wasted ad. Um, and, and what you want to know is an idea of like, okay, I think this is a female that's 35 to 45 that may have children. Um, then you can maybe target certain ads, um, let's say soap, right? Um, or, or, you know, um, blankets or comforter because it's warm because, uh, in many cases, women make all the decision, at least in my household, they're, they're the smart ones and they make the right decisions. So that, that's how it works. Um, is, you know, in many cases, you want to get the right ad in front of that, that, that right audience. Yeah. And so you, you know, run the Asia Pacific region, which, uh, you know, obviously you're located in Japan. So that's part of it. China, probably some, some other markets. And Griteo is a French company. Is that right? That's correct. So I manage the Asia Pacific business. Um, so um, my remit includes uh, Japan, China, Korea, um, Southeast Asia. So we're in multiple countries in Southeast um, Asia. Um, Australia and India. Great. So headquartered in Japan. So I assume that's the largest Asian market that you guys have. That's correct. Um, many technology companies um, have. Uh, of, or, I'm sorry. Many international technology companies 
have a very strong presence in two markets in Impact, typically Australia and in Japan. Typically because it's a lot easier for um, international companies to adopt to the local markets. And also the government framework makes it a lot easier for um, for companies to, to kind of expand their practices there. One of the reasons why, for Japan, for example, um, Japan is a country that, that has a smaller venture capital pool, for example. So there's, there's, it's harder to get venture capital seed money or, or first round or series A, series B, series C, series D, you know, and, and because of the culture of failure is something that's not, um, necessarily relished, um, as it is in the United States. So for example, if you fail on something, that's something that, you know, you could learn and you could grow and develop as a professional. Um, it, it's not seen in the same way in Japan. Um, and so as a result, um, some of the best talents that you have typically, typically go to the large conglomerates like the GE equivalents. Um, so they have like Mitsui, Mitsubishi. Um, so these are large conglomerates. Um, and you know, they go to, they herd, it's like a herd mentality. Uh, they go into these great, um, great, Conglomerates and these great conglomerates just get bigger and bigger. Uh, versus here in the United States, there's much more of an entrepreneurial environment where, and, and that ecosystem works, um, so much better where a 22 year old, um, graduate could come up with an idea and basically grow that business into a multi-billion dollar business. And because of that, it, that difference in infrastructure, um, it allows a lot of American companies and European companies to enter markets like Australia and Japan and really flourish because they don't have the same level of local competition. Interesting. I mean, Australia sort of makes sense to me because of English, but Japan, you know, that's a, that's a surprise. And as I think about it, I do sort of recall that I seeing that Yahoo Japan was actually the biggest search engine, which is sort of interesting, given that, you know, Yahoo is ancient history uh, in the U.S., yeah, that's it. it's um it's interesting in Japan. There's you know what uh, what I think Japanese companies do so well is that um, they spend a lot of front end work um, analyzing um, the market um, and and really going through a lot of um, analyses and a lot of discussion before actually making a decision. Um, there's pros and cons to that. The sales cycle um, is typically longer in Japan. But once the Japanese company makes a decision, um, these these partnerships tend to work really well because um, Japanese companies, in my experience, uh, tend to be uh, very very loyal. Um, they've they've thought out all the things that could pretty much go wrong, um, and they collaborate so much better because they've invested so much in understanding kind of the the American company or let's say the European company. And that's one of the key things that I think is really unique. And Yahoo Japan is a perfect example where, you know, Yahoo Inc. is no longer successful in the United States. Uh, but Yahoo Japan is still in 84% of the home pages of all the desktops in, in, or laptops in Japan. Um, so it's, it's, it's something that's really, really interesting. Um, there's, you know, tower records. I'm not sure if you still remember this, but of back course, in my yeah, days, yeah, yeah. we had tower records and, um, and they still exist, um, in Japan. So does round table, right? Or, you know, so those are, those are great examples of kind of, um, them taking a local business model, um, and making it very successful in Japan. Um, and, and I think that's what the Japanese companies do really well is they take, um, a lot of um, technology, they localize it, 
and 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 they they create a market um, in 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 Japan. Cool, that's that's very interesting. Thank you for sharing. So I'd love to turn to China now a little bit. You know, so you, China's part of your remit. Can you say a little bit about the Chinese companies that you work with and what some of their interests are? Yeah, um, China is just such a such an interesting, exciting market for me. It's it's some of my best times, my experience, best experiences professionally. Uh, was in China. And I, I think the reason why China is so interesting to me is that it is so unique. Um, so, you know, whereas, you know, what I was saying before, all the markets that I um, am in as, as a as an MD of APAC, no market is more unique than the market in China. And one of the reasons why is I think um, China is unique in terms of uh, the marketplace, consumer behaviors, how people think, and also kind of the entrepreneurial spirit. It is, you know, one of the most entrepreneurial, I guess, uh, countries that I've ever been in. And, and the speed, the time that it takes to turn around new products or new product features is absolutely unbelievable. Um, when I first arrived in China in the early 2000s, um, I still remember carrying, you know, a pack backpack. Uh, with wads of cash to pay for, let's say, a more expensive dinner because they didn't accept credit cards. Now you can't get on a, you know, in a taxi in China without using your phone. It's just, you know, I think what's unique about China is that they really just jumped a lot of steps in the middle. They jumped the laptop phase or they jumped the, you know, um, you know, all the, the mediums like the Visa card. They, they just, they just jumped straight to WeChat Pay, for example. Um, and I think, you know, where many markets look at U.S. as kind of um, uh, the, the innovator in many ways, um, what we're seeing today is that China is creating a lot of the innovation, um, especially on the technology side with the BATS, Baidu, Alibaba and Tencent um, that is changing how business is done um, on day to day. In, in China. Given the localized market there, like you said, is, is it tough for you to sell into China for your services? Yes. Um, so we have, um, so in, we have both in last company. So we have, uh, an export business. Um, so in other words, it's very hard for us to, uh, partner with, uh, the domestic companies. A few reasons why is because of the kind of the system infrastructure that's set. It doesn't make it, um, as modular, so it's very hard to bring a third-party technology vendor um, into a partnership. The second thing is that, you know, in many ways, um, it the marketplace is so unique and the com- consumer behaviors is so different um, that you almost have to rebuild uh, the, the mathematical algorithms um, and, and also the product features to adapt to the local market. And in many ways, um, kind of the, the local Chinese market uh, basically, we'll find, you know, especially, you know, 20 years ago, um, we'll, we'll, we'll build something, you know, on their own, homegrown. And the beauty about kind of the Chinese market is that, um, you know, the, the, the Chinese consumers are willing to try new things uh, versus I think in the United States, uh, consumers tend to go with brands or it takes time to build up the brand and the trust. Um, I think, um, I think, the, the China, Chinese market tends to be a little bit more adventurous. Uh, so we have an export business, um, and we do very well, and so does Google. And what we do is basically we take, um, Chinese, um, you know, Chinese advertisers and we help them market, um, their products 
in you know the U.S. market or rest of APAC or MIA. It's interesting thinking about Chinese companies, particularly coming to the U.S. I mean, you mentioned that the U.S. consumers, you know, they want the brand, and you think about the different brands that have come into the U.S. You know, from Japan, car companies, electronics, Korea as well, but not so many Chinese companies. You know, what's your sense about these Chinese companies entering America? You know, how they may be able to to do that. Yeah, no, I think it's really interesting. That's something that I'm I'm still trying to learn. I've been, you know, seven years in China, seven years in Japan, um, and and you know, some of kind of from my perspective, I feel like um, there's been this long-standing ever since World War II. Um, there's been this long-standing partnership between the two com- uh, countries, um, and that's also the case for uh, many other countries like South Korea, Taiwan, you know, so, uh, Australia. There's been this long-standing partnership where you know you have um, opportunities of bringing American products into the local kind of APAC markets, and then you know over time with disruption, you see basically low-cost items going into the United States. But kind of collaborating with the two markets, what they they've done essentially is I think they have uh, two markets that resemble each other more similarly. Um, you know, we, we've heard, you know, at least in our, our you know, our, our courses in the United States, how difficult it was to kind of build a, uh, a business and be successful there. And it holds true. I mean, if you look at the last 20 years and you look at all the technology companies um, that's been successful in the United States, um, I don't think I could name one successful technology company that's successful in the United States that brought their business model into China and has been successful. The Chinese um, local companies as well has done an amazing job, as I said before, of localizing their, their products and their business to adopt to the local Chinese market. And they built, you know, very successful business models that are very unique to the Chinese market. Um, and, and as a result, at, at the same time, it's like a two way street where, you know, if it's really hard to kind of build businesses and successful practices in China, it's also the same way the other way around. Um, and, and I think that's one of the things that, you know, I think brand is one, um, thing where I think it's, 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 it's a little bit different in how Chinese people perceive brand. Let's say just a general brand versus how I think, um, you know, Americans or the Western world, uh, perceive brand. Um, so I, I think the fact that you have different ideologies, uh, make it very difficult for Chinese companies to also kind of build successful businesses in kind of the, the American or the MIA markets. And, and in terms of branding, um, we were talking about this earlier. You know, there isn't a lot of successful Chinese brand, given that this is the second largest market in the world. Uh, there aren't many recognizable Chinese brands that are in the United States or in MIA that I could think of in the top of my head. We talked a little bit about TikTok, uh, Xiaomi. TikTok is, is, you know, a phenomenon that, that, that happened in the last year or two. Uh, it'll be interesting going forward. Um, you know, where, where TikTok stands and, you know, teenagers are always shifting from Facebook to Snapchat, you know, now to TikTok. Maybe it's going to shift somewhere else. So the question there is, can TikTok, you know, uh, sustain its brand image? The other Xiaomi is is something that's very is a is a brand that's very very popular in um, in developing countries like India um, and other Southeast Asian countries. But Xiaomi is not necessarily a big brand in EMEA or the United States. Mm-hmm. Yeah, got it. Great. I'd love to switch gears a little bit. I mean, to talk about localization in China from your own experience. You know, so you started this company, uh, Dorm Ninety Nine. You know 
back a number of number of years ago. Uh, would love to just hear some some stories in your experience uh, starting Dorm Ninety Nine and then some of the initial phases of the business. Yeah, I was um, um, at the Harvard Business School, and you know it was two thousand and four, two thousand and five. And I was just exploring different business ideas, you know. And th- at that time, it was, you know, uh, this was a, a Chinese market that was growing very, very fast. Um, There's an, you know, opportunity at that time to bring U.S. business models into um, the Chinese market. Um, so instead of taking a corporate job or going to investment banking, um, uh, my section mate and myself, um, and he's a Chinese national, he and I started a company called Dorm 99. Uh, we started it, um, during our, the end of our first year of, uh, business school. And we thought, okay, maybe we could roll out this Facebook model. Um, and, you know, and we could do a proof of concept with uh with peking university so that summer um, we spent the summer um, passing out flyers um, outside um, the campus um, and 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 see if there's an interest in building a social network starting from college students Um, we got enough of a critical mass where we thought well this could be a full-time gig so we started the company was it was very exciting Um, our, our business model was um was was really um, different, I guess, in a sense that you know, in, in order to kind of manage our working capital, um, and given my my classmate uh, Bill and I basically were funding out of our own pockets, um, we were um, we were basically paying all employees, including ourselves, about seven hundred and fifty dollars a month. And for the first seven or eight months um, out of business school, I was living under a dining table. I was sleeping under a dining table because I was spending so much time at work. And um, I wanted to kind of keep to my $750 um, a month budget. So the only place I could afford is uh, living or sleeping under someone's dining table. And, you know, that would only cost me $100 a month. Um, so it's been um, a humbling experience, but I really wanted to do it because, um, you know, I am American, but of Chinese descent. Um, and, you know, I think that it was a great learning experience because that was what I did was I thought and I, I thought I could bring a U.S. model or U.S. idea with a U.S. frame of mind into the China market, um, thinking that the Chinese market would adopt to kind of the American style. Um, this was at 2005 and 2006, uh, which wasn't necessarily true. And we learned, um, we learned kind of doing business in China is not that easy the hard way. Uh, so we have the rights to the college English test, and that's a, a standardized test that all college students must pass in order to graduate. Um, so we had access to data, like test score data of about, se- about 7 million students, you know, year in, year out. There's about 7 million students graduating every year at that time during in China. Having that access to that data, I thought it would be a really good idea to kind of build a business model where if you sign on to our social networking site, we will provide the percentile data of how you scored in a college English test. And that wasn't transparent before. Um, and I thought, you know, coming from the United States where transparency is, 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 is more of a common thing, um, I didn't think it was a very big deal. And then what else I did was if you were able, you know, if you're putting up your profile picture and put um, your kind of your personal information in, um, you know, we're also willing to share your percentile data, you know, across your peers uh, in, in the same school. 
Um, so that was also very kind of attractive for, you know, lots of people because they want to know, hey, I could care less where I stand nationally, but where do I stand, you know, amongst my peers? Um, so that idea was the idea that was the kind of the link that I thought was needed to really kind of get more membership into our website. Um, so when we launched the CET scores, we basically offered this kind of, um, this, this service provided that they re- registered and it was extremely popular and we were signing on, um, you know, uh, tens of thousands of, uh, of people by the, you know, by every 10 minutes. It was, it was really, really exciting. Um, but what we realized at the same time was we were creating so many issues, uh, to the government, um, by, you know, basically sharing specific data that wasn't supposed to be transparent. And, um, and students were sharing scores and, um, you know, parents got hold of the, the scores and then, you know, some of the students tell their parents that their English is very good and maybe their, their scores didn't reflect that. And, and, you know, we took down the, the, the telephone lines in the Ministry of Education. So we got a call from the office to say, basically, shut down. You guys got to shut down. So at one point, we were the largest social networking site. And then so that was the, the biggest high of my professional career. And then, you know, at around 2 or 3 p.m. in the afternoon, we were forced to kind of shut down our operations or at least temporarily shut down our operations. So it was a very humbling experience at the same time. And it was it was, you know, my fault in a sense that I felt like, you know, we, we, we could take a kind of a, a unique idea and something that probably would have worked in the United States, um, did not, you know, did not work the same way in, in China. And, and I guess I found it, found out through the hard way. <laughs> Great. That's a really interesting, uh, lesson. I was wondering, could you say a little bit more about the relationship with the government? It sounds like such a valuable asset to be able to get your hands on those uh, test scores and hugely important to the early growth of the company. Can you say maybe sort of how, how you went about getting that access? And then secondly, um, you know, more about sort of the shutdown and how long it was and, and what you ended up doing after that? So this test happens every six months and most of the people don't pass um, the, the college English test uh, in its first try. I think the pass rate is, is, is very low. Um, so many people take the test multiple times. If you can imagine for the administration to basically send out, you know, let's say 13, 14 million mail pieces or parcels every single year to share the test scores um, through stale mail um, was very costly, you know, uh, time consuming and, and very ineffective. Um, so through kind of um, a, a contact um, or a friend uh, that was also a Harvard Business School alumni, um, we had access to the administration that was in charge of the college English test. And um, we were able to kind of strike a deal at that time to basically provide the service for free, where we provide the test scores um, to to the students through the web. That would basically save a lot of time and money and effort. Um, so that that was why it was kind of a, a mutually kind of beneficial relationship. Um, so that that was how that kind of developed and, and how it happened. As as a, it wasn't. When we started the social network site, we didn't think, oh, let's go partner with a college English test. I think what happens with a lot of entrepreneurships is that, um, you know, you try to network um, as much as you can. You talk to different people 
And then you realize that perhaps uh, there are people out there that have, you know, um, a relationship or, you know, um, a, a contact that that could be very beneficial to your business. And, uh, you know, this was something that was discovered about half year, a year after, you know, we started doing this full time. Uh, where we were talking to someone about this and, and, you know, talking about the need for, um, automation, at least on the web, um, with the English test scores. And we thought, well, that's great because we're building a social networking site that was focused on college students. These are two kind of, um, items or ideas that are really kind of, um, connected and we could leverage that, uh, with trying to get more membership. Right. So in retrospect, there's probably other ways of doing it. And we found out the long way. It took us, you know, 18 months to kind of pivot our business model to kind of create a, you know, a profitable business. But, you know, it, it was a, it, it was a, it was a difficult learning lesson, um, because we made a lot of mistakes, um, during the way. And then how did you end up coming back? You said you pivoted to a new model. That's correct. So we, you know, we went to back to the college English test, the administration there and, you know, obviously deeply apologized. And, and, you know, I, um, it's, 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 you know, it's, it's, you know, really apologizing, you know, and, and saying, Hey, look, you know, this won't happen again. We, we, you know, we're going to kind of change and rebuild the trust. And, and, you know, it took a long time where we were just basically sharing, um, the test score data. Um, with all the students without even getting any kind of return in, you know, marketing or anything else. So we, we just, we were, we're just saying, Hey, look, we're just going to share the score. We're going to do it for free. Even though we're paying for the server costs, we're paying for all the customer support, the technical support, everything like that to kind of rebuild and regain the trust. And the next step was basically how do we leverage the data where we're not sharing the data or, or, you know, being so transparent that other people have access to that information. Um, so it took us a little bit of time, but we basically kind of rebuilt the business model where, hey, that test score data is still very, very valuable. It allows us to, um, you know, that information would be very valuable to at that period of time. Um, there's a lot of um, English training education um, institutions out there that was going public, that was very, very successful. Um, there was a strong need for them to basically build their kind of their, their revenue base and their, their subscriber base. Um, and the data that we have, because it's English training, and these are multi-billion dollar companies or worth hundreds of millions of dollars, we thought, oh, what a great opportunity for us to basically, we know the data, uh, we could target market. So if you, let's say, fail um, in a certain section of the CET test, let's say, and, and you failed this section of the test, we could say, hey, look, here's a, a bushi, like a, like a refresher course. Yeah, like um, Shinto that, that may, uh, That's right. That's right. It, that, that could help you kind of, um, you know, uh, be more prepared when you take the next test again. And given the fact that most people fail the, the, you know, the first few times that, you know, having a target marketing approach to, you know, studying on certain parts of the CET is, is very, very valuable. And then what we did was we could, you know, we worked on, on that revenue share. Um, and it became a very good business model for us, but it took a very long time for us to figure that out. Yeah. Well, great, great, great sort of lessons. I mean, I think that, you know, like you said, sort of entrepreneurship is very much about sort of pivoting and finding new opportunities and sometimes challenges end up being, you know, sort of opportunities in disguise. Um, Great. I'd love to talk next about, you know, after Dorm 99, you joined Esquel, which is one of the largest apparel makers in the world, particularly among men's 
woven shirts. Um, and you worked, you know, on helping them establish their own brand. So many of the contract manufacturers in China, you know, they work for all kinds of different international brands, but they don't really take the chance to start their own brand. And so can you say a little bit about your experience or how you got into that, number one, and then two, you know, what your experience was trying to grow a a China-specific brand of shirts? Yeah, um, for me, I, I, you know, I, I just love to learn. Um, and, and when this kind of opportunity came about, I was really, um, excited about it. Um, I had a flower shop, um, back in the days when in the United States and we had a very successful kind of floral arrangement, um, company. And I've always been fascinated with kind of how, um, consumers behave and act. And at that period of time, um, in, in kind of the late 2000s, um, what we saw was a burgeoning business, a burgeoning middle class. Um, so you have people that are really willing to spend and you have people that didn't necessarily have the disposable income, let's say 10 years ago, but now all of a sudden have this, this you know, disposable income. So it was, a, it, it was like a, a new market for brands. Um, so only the luxury brands at t- that time were really well known, but everything between luxury and basically, you know, um, you know, cheap, I guess, uh, designs or cheap brands are the only brands that people were familiar with. So there's this kind of this, this, you could almost say like a genie coefficiency as in terms of understanding of, you know, what are the luxury brands and what are cheap brands, but no one knew like kind of the, the, you know, middle of the line or, you know, you know, or, or, or boutiques, right. That are, are, are really good brands, uh, have really good products. Um, so what happened was, um, it was really interesting and I wanted to kind of learn more because I never, um, really outside of my flower, um, arranged floor arrangement company. I never really had, uh, you know, any kind of dealings with the consumers, let alone Chinese consumers. So I, I took on the opportunity to really understand and learn. And, and in my two years there, it was so fascinating to see the Chinese market and then Chinese consumers, uh, where when I first joined, um, in many times because you had a market that, um, wasn't necessarily, um, fully educated in a lot of the brands or, or, you know, what makes a good shirt or apparel, um, what happened. And there was a lot of copycats at the same, same time is that a lot of, you know, not so great brands, for example, would raise their price. And, and if they raise their price high enough, the consumer would naturally think, Hey, the psychology behind that would be like, well, if it's expensive, it's got to be good. Um, and, and so we were at that time, we're competing because we had a high end brand and we had a, a mass brand as well. Um, so in the high end brand, what we saw was a lot of competition and uh, in that area because there were a lot of, um, a lot of brands out there that didn't have I would say very good products or quality products, but they were selling at a high price and doing a good job in marketing. Um, and, and Chinese consumers were buying. Um, at the end of my second year, what we saw was that the Chinese consumer got so sophisticated in terms of how they buy and what they buy. You know, it became much more of an educated buy. So what you see was a lot of brands either going out of business or they're lowering their pricing down because they know they can't charge a higher price because the quality of the product is not there. You know, the consumer market really just understood what is good, what is not so good, understood different brands and then adjusted to it. So I think that was really, really easy, uh, really, really interesting. And it was it was a big learning on my end. Yeah. And so can you describe the sort of growth of the business while you were there? 
Yeah, so we were um, primarily in um, the the large markets. So we were in Shanghai and Beijing only at that time when I first took over. And again, it's one of the largest shirt manufacturers in the world. They produce 100 million shirts a year. So they produce for Hugo Boss, for Lacoste, for um, Abercrombie & Fitch, Tommy Hilfiger, etc. So they 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 build they they produce or manufacture really quality products. Um, but they didn't have their own kind of um, successful brand name. And I was tasked to kind of help them kind of build um, that brand. So we, we built, um, you know, Shirtstop, which was kind of a mass brand, and Pi, which is a luxury brand um, across, um, across China. And what was really interesting, exciting to me was that, you know, the difference in, you know, um, how, you know, difference in markets, um, in between the first tier cities versus the second tier cities. So, you know, how would a Guangzhou consumer buy and purchase and how different it might be to kind of someone in Chengdu or someone in Shenyang. Um, and so it was, it was really, really exciting and also really different in a sense that how, you know, we negotiated space. A lot of it required relationships. And even if I have a, uh, you know, uh, one of my, you know, Chinese, you know, employees that, that go out and negotiate if they're not from that local city. Um, it was very hard to negotiate and, you know, pass all the kind of the, the regulations or requirements before you could open up a store. Um, so it was, it was a, it, it was in many ways, especially in kind of the second tier cities, it was, it was very much like the wild, wild west. Um, at that period of time, but it was also exciting in a sense that, you know, I think people were really trying, you know, new brands and, and new ideas and new fashion statements, et cetera. Um, and, and it, it allowed us to kind of grow during that time. Yeah, really interesting. And I think, you know, a real interesting compliment to your current positions, which have been mostly on, you know, retail uh, online. And so this is really in the news these days with, with the COVID epidemic. And, you know, people switching out of, you know, sort of brick and mortar retail to much more online, you know, given your sort of experience on both sides of these, you know, what's your sort of prognosis about, you know, what's going to be happening in the, in the next six months post COVID? Yeah, that's an interesting one. Um, all my forecasts um, are, are way off. So I, I'm probably not the person uh, that you want to get advice from, but I can tell you what I am seeing. Um, and what I am seeing here is that, um, you know, through, because we, Critio, we work with all the largest retailers across the world. So we have visibility as in terms of, you know, how um, everybody's doing um, as a sector. Um, and what we are seeing is that obviously, and no surprise, is that with COVID, um, on-site traffic, uh, so people going in and visiting the websites and, you know, the page views are actually increasing dramatically. The other um, thing that's really good about e-commerce uh, or retail e-commerce is also there's a lot more spend on on-site sales. Again, that's very typical given the fact that we are all stuck mostly at home. So instead of going to the store to buy, we're buying it online. Um, the, the issue that we have as well, especially during the pandemic, is that people are tend to be a little bit more selective in what they choose to buy. Um, so what you're seeing is the cost per order is actually dropping significantly. In many cases, people are just buying what is the necessity. Um, you know, so maybe I am more, uh, I'm just going to buy, a, I don't need to buy suits anymore. I just need to buy a white shirt and who cares what I wear beneath my waist. Um, and so the necessities 
tend to do products tend to do really well. Um, whereas, you know, the, the ones that are more unique or, you know, are considered more luxurious are the ones that, um, are not being, I guess, um, purchased as frequently. Um, so that's, that's one thing. We, we, I, when I first, when COVID first hit, I thought we would have a six month, um, you know, issue and then we would be on a road to recovery by basically Q4. Obviously, it's not the case, uh, given kind of, um, you know, the world's pandemic, the number keeps on increasing. Um, so now I think, you know, it'd be very interesting going forward. What we're seeing in the retail market that's really interesting is that um, in the retail sector, talking to a lot of the retailers that I know, um, a lot of them were very reliant. The brick and mortar stores were essentially billboards as well for the company. So basically, not only do they drive kind of immediate gratification when people come in and buy, uh, they also serve as great advertising, right? So uh, brand awareness, et cetera, by having kind of a storefront. And and that 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 brand awareness was created um, with foot traffic. That foot traffic, a lot of that came from tourists uh, or people coming from out of town or out of country. And and one of the issues now with kind of all the restrictions to travel, um, there's no longer that foot traffic on the street that's creating a return investment in kind of creating a brand awareness um, and and indirect sales. Um, so a lot of retail companies now are looking at, you know, their omni-channel strategy and figuring out, hey, look, should I um, invest more on the digital, you know, side rather than brick and mortar because I have all these fixed costs that I still need to cover. Um, so that's something that, you know, will be very interesting over the next six months. Uh, but I do see um, many companies now are shifting more to the digital strategy because um, the great thing about, you know, it's a horrible pandemic, but the great thing about kind of the change in behavior habits is that people are feeling more comfortable buying online. That's going to change the dynamic going forward because there's always that group or that, that market where people are, are uncomfortable. They'll search for something online, then they still physically drive to the store um, to pick up the product. Um, but now I think things change in a sense that they don't have a choice. So they make the purchase online and lo and behold, the product shows up on time. So now they all of a sudden feel much more comfortable buying online. So I think a lot of that will change going forward. It's no different than Zoom. How you do business travel does the other. We're also big on the travel sector. And one of the things that is a detriment to the travel sector, especially on the business travel side, is now the fact that you and I are doing a Zoom call and it's, you know, it works perfectly fine. It goes, you know, begs the question of, hey, I used to fly every single quarter to all, you know, to India, to Australia, to Korea, to China, um, you know, to, to Singapore. Is that really still needs, you know, do we still need to kind of spend that kind of money for me to travel, stay in a hotel, pay my per diem? Um, or can I do it on Zoom? Right. So I think that's, that's what we're seeing also in kind of, the retail sector, uh, where people are just going more digital. Yeah, it makes a lot of sense. And certainly, I mean, I've really accelerated the penetration and, and sort of uptake of digital, uh, you know, in many different ways, which really fits very well into your business. So looks like uh, Criteo is a good, uh, good future. Well, Ken, we're just about out of time. So just want to thank you so much for sharing your insights and being on our uh, China Corner Office program. Thank you so much, Chris. I appreciate the opportunity. Great. Thank you very much. Thanks for joining us on China Corner Office. This podcast was produced and edited by Chris Marquis, Kaiser Guo, and Jason McRonald. Did you enjoy the show? 
If so, leave us a review on Apple Podcasts and let us know your thoughts. And don't forget to subscribe to the feed for alerts when new episodes are published. See you soon.